The Democratic ticket is generating sort of a buzz with Kamala Harris as Joe Biden's running mate. What do we most need to know about her? The Democratic Party's holding its convention virtually this week. What to watch for most keenly? And school's beginning in some places, though with chaotic decision-making over teaching on-site, online, or some hybrid thereof. Ideas and concerns about all these things abound. I'm Shiva Lagminas. You're in the Forum. So, Kamala Harris, in the weeks and months to come, of course, before the general election, we'll all hear and read plenty about all the candidates. Between glowing praise intended to boost candidacies and opposition research intended to sink them, but we need to know where all the presidential can- well, where both presidential candidates stand on major issues, and where all the candidates stand, and what they stand on in their party platforms. That's a big issue and what the VP candidates stand for since they're proverbially a heartbeat away from the presidency. Mike Pence already is in that position, Harris potentially so. It's ironic that in making the announcement of his choice, presidential nominee Joe Biden tweeted, I have the great honor to announce that I've picked Kamala Harris, a fearless fighter for the little guy and one of the country's finest public servants, as my running mate. Such a staunch supporter of abortion and staunch abortion activist cannot truly be called a fearless fighter for the little guy. This is my opinion and the opinion of many in the pro-life world. There's an article in Catholic News Agency about the fact that the California bishops opposed the decision made by then-Attorney General of California, Kamala Harris, when she required, she compelled Pregnancy help centers, which far outnumber abortion clinics anywhere in America, pregnancy help centers to use compelled language to advertise for free or low-cost abortion. Can you imagine that? Pregnancy help centers are there in the first place to offer women a true choice. That's why the pro-life movement is the true choice movement, to give women a choice so that if they keep their babies, there there is a place to bring that child after after they they deliver the child, and even before then, the maternity needs the woman has. Every sort of need she has is provided at a pregnancy help center. But to compel that kind of speech, that's by the California Attorney General back in, in the day, Kamala Harris, that was that, well, that shows you the extreme position on that. And yet, that was eventually ruled on in 2018 by the Supreme Court and overruled fortunately, because we don't want that to be compelled uh, to be compelled in any pregnancy help center. So that's one of one of the positions she held. She's a fearless fighter. All right. But but define little guy when you say she's a fearless fighter for the little guy. And clarify who and how Harris fights, because words used to mean certain things which have now changed. Let's untangle some of this up front. Between her years of government service in California and in the U.S. Senate after that, her actions as attorney general and then her votes in the Senate, we'll get a fuller portfolio on Kamala Harris going forward. But one key thing we know now is from her action, as Cal- again, as California attorney general, in going after pro-life citizen journalist David Daleiden for the undercover videos he filmed and released 
to reveal the business of marketing baby body parts by abortion clinic staffers. And the conversations those staffers had about about such sales, it's all gruesome, which is why evidence was required for people to believe it. David DeLayden provided that, and Planned Parenthood tried to stop those videos from coming out. But when the first videos were revealed, they got high-profile coverage in enough media that Congress held two investigations, one in the Senate and one in the House, into the practices the videos revealed of marketing baby body parts. To put context around the backstory, though, and former California Attorney General Kamala Harris's role in it, which led to a raid on David Daleiden's home by the California Department of Justice to seize his equipment and videos, to put context around that backstory, look at the centrality and driving force of the abortion lobby, and look at abortion as an issue for politicians, media, and culture shapers. And then look at how that matches Americans' beliefs about abortion, which very well may include you. As often is shown in national polls, and confirmed now most recently by a Notre Dame survey on abortion, nearly half of all Americans identify as pro-life. Did you know that? You don't hear that in big media, big elite media. Maybe pro-life media you do, but did you know that? Nearly half of all Americans identify as pro-life. There are degrees of that, and they they come into different categories, but to some degree, pro-life. Polls also show strong majorities of Americans support incremental pro-life laws, like late-term abortion bans, parental notification laws, and certainly limits on taxpayer funding of abortion. That's a big one. Even for voters, citizens who identify as pro-choice, identify themselves as pro-choice, they tend to, to a person, not want taxpayers to fund it. They don't want taxpayer dollars to have to fund abortion. These results reveal that a majority of Americans dislike abortion. Many elected members of government don't reflect that. So how well do they represent their constituents? How vocal are you with your elected representatives about these issues if you're among that majority? But your reps vote against your beliefs. Sensible moral views of life aren't confined to one party, though some believe they do. Just ahead of the Democratic, this ongoing Democratic National Convention, if you're listening to this during the convention, the Democrats for Life organization, and yes, there is a Democrats for Life organization, and it's larger than you think. The Democrats for Life organization publicly released a letter asking the DNC platform committee to adopt more inclusive language on sanctity of life issues. That letter was signed by over 100 current and former Democratic elected officials. They want the party to be more of a big tent one, including and embracing those Democrats who are still pro-life, and there are more of them than media coverage ever reflects. But they're marginalized and largely unheard by their party. That should change if Democrats want to be truly inclusive, tolerant, just, and representative of the so-called little guy, the vulnerable among us, the voiceless and threatened. No one is more unprotected, vulnerable, and threatened than the child in the womb. But they're also deserving as all human rights. Of course, that goes without saying, doesn't it? Of all the rights that a good life should enjoy. No life, no rights, say some civil rights activists who run pro-life organizations, like Reverend Walter Hoy, and Ryan Bomberger, to name just two, 
I've got posts about them at inforumblog.com. So on speaking of human rights, on that note, what are they teaching about human rights in schools? It depends on where your children are taught, I, of course. And these days, how and where are the teachings going on? An NBC poll was headlined, Few Parents Say Their Children Will Be Attending Full In-Person School in the Fall. Hmm. It said less than a fifth, less than a fifth of American parents say their children will be attending school fully in person this fall amid the coronavirus pandemic. Right now, there are some good Catholic schools and uh, hybrid schools, uh, a number of, of school academies, Catholic academies, parochial schools, that are asking parents out there, especially those receiving vouchers, to rethink their public school attendance and take another look at the Catholic school system. But to get back to the, the, during the coronavirus pandemic and what schools are doing, polls reveal a small percentage of American parents say their children's schooling will take place fully in person, a very small percentage, fully in person. So a lot of American students aren't going to be in school. While just under 50%, so not even half, under 50% say their kids will be learning only online. So where are the rest going to be? A quarter of them, the parents, say there will be a mix of in-person and online instruction. So it's a mix, a hybrid. And then about 15, really low percent, say they didn't know what their children's school situation would yet be. That's probably an ongoing project, but and that, that, that number's probably higher than 15%. Don't really know yet, which keeps changing in some school cases, municipalities. Yes, schools across the country are rethinking their instruction plans. So this work in progress will continue. Keep your eye on it. Of course, you are for your children's schools. But for the country, on, on, on learning in America this year, I'm putting together resources on how to do remote learning. And I'll put out tools and resources for parents, for families, and human interest stories on that. There are plenty of those. Plenty of human interest stories. You may not hear them or see them or have access to them very often, but I love finding them and bring them in, bringing them in. So these, uh, these include things like impact of COVID on the office and other workplaces, on the home and the community, and our future as far as anyone can see that horizon with any informed vision. Will people return to the office for the most part when the the time comes that it's safer to be out in our cities and communities again, commuting and using transit and being near others. What impact will the overall experience of the 2020 pandemic have on the elections this year? Oh, that's a big story. The whole post office story. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi called the House back this weekend on that. And what will the impact and overall experience of 2020 be on society in the future? Will the politics of division ever ease back from this spiteful, angry process that threatens our democracy, frankly? We have some very fine, noble, wise, and dignified leaders in our government. I, I've interviewed and become friends with any number of them on radio over the years, gotten to know them well. And I promise you, there are, there are more than a few very noble, wise, dignified leaders in government. These good leaders need us to have their backs. One of them told me that on radio. And a church prelate, a cardinal, told me to urge people to do that very thing. He said, and this is almost a direct quote, thank your representatives for the wise and moral decisions they make and let them know you have their backs. 
So we, the people, have to participate in the process, the political process of shaping policy and law and speaking truth in charity to people we encounter. On that note, I've got a good story to end on. USA Today has this article titled, Americans Appear to be Deeply Divided, But We Found a Different Story Traveling the U.S. Yeah, that's the headline. It's long, but it really is the title of the piece. It's written by two opinion contributors to USA Today. Let's just call them Jordan and Christopher. Jordan and Chris, they call themselves. And it's a really good piece for us to consider and, and to hear this kind of this kind of reporting that was done, you know, the talk about boots on the ground, this is on the ground, traveling America. Together, Jordan and Christopher, Chris, traveled America. And they opened the piece in, in USA Today saying, we're often told Americans are historically divided. Yet the two of us, a Democrat and a Republican, they self-identify, witnessed something else while traveling together across 44 states and almost 20,000 miles of road. Imagine that road trip. Out there, they write, we saw firsthand how Americans are more empathetic and less dogmatic than many are inclined to believe. Beneath the polarized rhetoric, people care about their fellow citizens, are bewildered by the hostility all around them, and want many of the same things out of our democracy. They write, we've certainly heard the war of words that continues to drive Americans toward ideological poles. It was deafening at political rallies, they write, no one policy will eradicate that division. And some polarization, they write, is inevitable. Yet, if you look beyond our politics, a consensus, a consensus exists that can still unite us. A recent poll by this organization called More in Common illustrates this well. They point this out. On the one hand, Less than 10% of those polled believe we're unified as a country. But the, on the other hand, it, it, this recent poll reveals or paints a radically different picture. 94% of those who responded agreed that we need a leader. 94. A, we need a leader who can bring America Americans back together again. And a staggering 96% agreed that we should be Americans first and partisans second. Wow, who knew that? Would, could you tell that by the news reports these days? Political divisions seem so intractable, write these two authors. But there's another way to interpret the state of our union. We can course correct because we all want something better than this. The two authors at USA Today write, the two of us believe the balm for political toxicity begins with having simple conversations. They say each of us in our own lives can listen and learn from those who think differently. And, and, and how often do we encounter those who think differently if we only gravitate towards those who think like us? They say, so when we first started our cross-country trips, our conversations broke down over politics usually. Then, over time, we learned how to talk about different subjects without fighting as much. Oh, we can learn from that. So first, we began entering each conversation with a strong dose of humility. Ooh, that's a really good piece of advice. A strong dose of humility about the other side. See, about what we think about people who disagree with us or people who we oppose ideologically. They write, we found that people's views often 
or usually, we're far more complex than we expected. So focus on shared values, they say. Focus on lifting up shared values. When the two of us argued to win, we rarely heard the other person's views. Ah, that's so good. That's so, I don't know, it makes me think Chestertonian or William F. Buckley or some of the great debaters of their times. But when you start out, they say, by validating aspects of each other's political positions, you can engage in real dialogue. It's like talk and listen, listen and talk. Listen and then tell the other person, okay, this is what I hear you saying. And then the person realizes I'm being heard. That's what these two authors are saying. We've long known that. Socratic reasoning, reasoning, the great intellectual tradition, the art of the argument. And then the other person feels heard or you feel heard. And then you say, okay, I understand why you feel the way you do based on your premise. Let's talk about the premise or my premise. So they say that's real dialogue. And then they explain the experiences that help shape us. And they found that in the people they encountered. It says, they say that one of them, Christopher, had a much easier time listening to Jordan's views when he thought of Jordan not as the, the ideological person he thought he was, but as the military veteran he knew he was, rather than a Republican. Similarly, Jordan understood Chris and his perspective better when he viewed Chris as a journalist rather than a Democrat. See, we amount to far more than our voting records or our political parties, and those personal experiences offer clues they write, and very, very wise words, to how we communicate. Listen to one another's languages. And here's some good advice they go on to share. These are all techniques for bridging the different political languages many Americans speak. Think about that. We speak political languages, don't we? So for one, Jordan, one of the two authors, gravitates toward a language of patriotism, while Chris more readily uses a language of empathy. And that pretty much sizes up their parties, doesn't it? Ah, this is really instructive. They write, We believe the task ahead for Americans who aspire to national leadership is to unite these two languages, patriotism and empathy. What great advice that is. By fluently binding them together, we can carry out more constructive dialogues about the problems we want to solve together. And then they wrap up with this. As recent events have shown... We face an uphill climb to overcome the scars left by our history, to combat combat bigotry, hatred, and violence, and to make the American dream more accessible. But the people we met on our journeys were caring, ready to do right by their neighbors, and devoted to their communities. They gave us hope that there is a way forward. They let us believe in a more unified future. That's up to us, folks. That's up to us all. Share your ideas with me in forum at comcast.net. Send the link to this podcast to others and invite them for next time here in the forum. (laughs) 